Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Feliz Año Nuevo. Bon année. That's only three languages I learned it in, okay. Good morning, my name is Carl Cox and I will be your scripture reader for this morning. As we begin a new year, we begin a new series, diving deeper into studying God's faithfulness to keep his promises, <clears throat> excuse me, by looking at the patriarchs of our faith in Genesis. This morning we will see the origin of Sarah and Abraham and as we celebrate God's sovereignty over his story and how the watering of life by the sovereign grace transforms barrenness into blessing. Please join me in reading Genesis 11 through 27 through 12, 3. Now these are the descendants, excuse me, now these are the generations of Terah Terah fathered Abram, Nahar, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father, Terah, in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abraham and Nahar took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahar's wife was Milcah the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and Iscah. Now, Sarai was barren. She had no children, no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. 12, 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in all, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Expressive reading. All flesh is grass, and all his beauty is like the flower of the field. Thank you, Carl. Uh, good morning, everybody. Happy New Year. Salamat tahun baru, just to add one more language in there. Okay, first things first, I'm, I'm, I'm test driving a pair of glasses. Don't judge me. I have a hard time seeing from a distance, and I, I got these so I can, on this side, I can enjoy seeing your faces, and on this side, I can wake up. Oh my gosh, I have no idea. Uh, I have a bad problem seeing at a distance, so much so that uh, sometimes I'll see people in public and I'll think that I know them, and when the blurry face becomes clear, and after I've talked with them for a while, I realize I don't know them. It's really bad. Earlier, someone said, hey, you got glasses, and I saw, I said, wow, you've got braces. And someone standing right there goes, what is this, middle school? Right? It's like, oh, yeah, okay. Uh, so I'm trying these out. Don't judge me. 
Uh, here's the truth. Uh, as we study God's word in this new year, we all need to see things more clearly. Uh, if you're a Christian here today, uh, my hope is uh, that you see more clearly the security that you have in God's sovereignty, uh, that that is something uh, that you find a new significance in his story, the fact is he wants to use you for his glory. One way he wants to do that is by you, if you know Jesus personally, uh, to share with those that are struggling in their faith or those that don't yet have a faith the good news of God's faithfulness and his promise. That is fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus. So before we study God's word, I want to ask you, uh, who are you listening for? Who in your life, who do you work with, who in your family, uh, who are your friends that, that really needs to hear this? God wants to use you. We're not here for just infotainment in a sermon. We're truly here for transformation. Uh, God wants you to see clearly that he has authority to bring something from nothing. He did this in creation. This is how the Bible begins. And he does this in recreation. He did it in the womb of Mary, calling forth Jesus by the power of his spirit, and he wants to do it in the world today for all who have faith. God has the gift in his grace to give us this invitation to see his authority that wants to use everything in your life for everyone in here, in everywhere you engage, for his will to be done to use you and to demonstrate that he redeems everything that he allows and that he is working even your struggles, your places of barrenness for, for his glory. If we're honest, even if you're a Christian, you know this stuff is true and you believe it, but oftentimes we live by what we see. We define ourselves by what we feel. And we forfeit the opportunity to live by faith and we miss the opportunity to live in bountiful blessing of the Lord when we fully lean in to trust God, his word, and his promises. So I want to give you a, a literal picture of the opportunity I want us to go on today as we study the faithfulness of God that transforms barrenness into blessing. The hottest and the driest place on earth is in the United States. It's a place called Death Valley. That's an aerial shot from a satellite of what Death Valley looks like almost all the time. But there was a time last year when it rained, and it rained hard. And even over this barren place where nothing is growing, somehow there were seeds of life. And it led to what people called a super bloom. You see that picture? That's Death Valley. And we find it very difficult to believe that God can take a barren place and make it a bountiful and beautiful place of blossoming, of blessing. But that's what he wants to do. He wants to work that in you and through you. Think about the places where you feel barren, where you identify with, with the Death Valley, friendships that you have or you don't have, family relationships that are fractured, or dysfunctional. Financial situations, like what we heard the testimony with Danielle, that seem impossible to even dream of that being a blessing. Or looking out at your future, the uncertainties, the unknowns, or your presence, the fear that you have, the poverty of hope that you have, the poverty of security that you're experiencing, the poverty of love 
that you don't feel. Think about those areas of barrenness and invite God's spirit to help you experience the blessing that he wants to give you through the person and work of Jesus. We're just going to take two steps in this journey today. And the first step, we're going to see uh, that God is sovereign over everything. He's sovereign over history. And the genealogy that we started with uh, shows that his story is actually going somewhere. You're thinking, Mitchell, how in the world can we talk about God's sovereignty when, when you made Carl suffer by reading those names? Someone turned around to me and they said, what did Carl do that you gave him these names to read? And I said, I can't tell you. <laughs> just kidding. It's just in the Bible. It's in the Bible. Uh, if you're like me, okay, uh, I'm from Appalachia. And where I'm from, people who study genealogies, hillbilly genealogists, they got to become moonshiners to distill down and distinct, uh, make distinct a family tree that has no branches. Callan said that that would go over better than it did. So... <laughs> I tried it on him. He's like, that's good. He was setting me up, man. <laughs> setting me up. Here's the truth. Scripture uses genealogies to distill history, to display that God's story is going somewhere. This is why the New Testament begins with a list of names. Matthew's gospel begins in, in chapter 1. The first 17 verses are a, a list of, of family the headwaters of all humanity come, all the families of the earth come from Adam and Eve. And when Luke gives a genealogy of Jesus in Luke chapter 3, he is sure to go all the way back to Adam and Eve. Uh, Matthew, at the beginning of the New Testament, his gospel, he just goes back to Abraham, and that's where we're going to camp. The family, the familial, the genealogical connection with Abraham. One, uh, God does this because he is sovereign over everything. One of my favorite hymns, we, we haven't sung it today, uh, Crown Him with Many Crowns. Y'all have heard this hymn. I love that hymn, and I love the line. It uses a word that we never use, potentate, right? Crown him the Lord of years, the potentate of time. Yeah, all right. Okay, <laughs> table for one. It's like middle school all, all over again. Uh, here we are. So let me, let me try to bring it a little closer to home. You know the power of, of family connections in a story. This is what we're going to talk about. Think about Star Wars, all right? The most climactic moment in Return of the Jedi is when Darth Vader says to Luke, he says, Luke, I am your father. And you're like, what? Family connection? And the uh, Lucas Inter Entertainment's like, what? Billions of dollars? Because everybody wants to know how it fits together. So backstory, origin story. And years later, we're still learning about how Anakin and Luke are connected. You see, the family connection makes a story more powerful. Maybe you're a Lion King fan. And it was little Simba. Little Simba, who realized the family connection, Musafa, was his dad. And Simba, when he realized the family connection, he realized that he was the rightful king to the Pride Lands, right? And that's what happens when we make the family connection. We see who the rightful king is. And I got a bunch of boomers in here that feel left out. Don't worry, boomers. I got you. I got you. Here we go. Remember the parent trap? Yeah. Annie and Haley were separated. Yeah, my kids are shaking their head. Dad, just close in prayer. Stop. Yeah, they'll get over it. Okay. They're separated. They meet at a camp. They had no idea they were sisters. And when they realize the familial connection, the whole plot goes forward. 
That's what a genealogy is. That's what family connection is. It's powerful in all of the stories that we really enjoy. And so much more in this. In Genesis, when we're reading about the Tower of Babel, and we, we go to the, the blessing of Abraham, the bridge in that is family tree. It's, it's the generations of Shem. You see it in, in verse 10 of chapter 11. And, and where we started, uh, the generations of, of Terah, Abram's father. And through them, God is sending his message and children having children having children through his people to the ends of the earth that his blessing will go as far as the curse is found. And in this section, we read about Terah's family. It's Abraham's uh, brothers and nephews and some women that are mentioned in the family. And it's important that we notice that one thing that is called out in one person, Sarai, in verse 30, is that she was barren. She had no child. And the narrator is prepping us. He's setting up this massive surprise that God is able and faithful to keep his promises in these specified places that are barren. And that's going to be important. It's so powerful, we overlook the fact that Abram marries a cousin, and I'm not going to make any more Appalachian jokes. It's just kind of weird. Uh, the endogamy, uh, endogamy, whatever it's called, it's later condemned in the Pentateuch. I just feel like I need to point that out. But more importantly, I need to point out that not only uh, does this connect um, God's story, genealogy, but it, it connects, I mean, it connects redemptive history, but it connects God's story. God's story in Scripture, many of you have looked at this new year and you said, I want to read the Bible all the way through. It's fantastic. I'm glad you want to do that. But these 66 books that were written by more than 40 different authors over thousands of years and thousands of miles geographically, they actually is just one story in four episodes written by the Holy Spirit through chosen men. God tells a redemptive drama, the drama of all dramas that begins with creation and is met in disruption in the fall. And in the context of the fall, God makes a promise and that third episode is redemption. And in the end, what we will look forward to is consummation. And it's all the way through based on grace. And we, we know this through the people and the places that we meet all through Scripture. Even in the genealogy of Abraham, we get to the end of the, uh, of the book of Genesis, we meet Judah. And we've talked about Judah before and the horrific decision that he made to sleep with his daughter-in-law. But God's grace, rather than stop and erase a people who are unfaithful, he's pleased to demonstrate his faithfulness. It's important that we understand that because truly it connects God and humanity. This is why we study genealogies. Jesus had to have a family tree so that we could full, fully identify with him in his humanity. He had to have it. You go to places like Hebrews chapter 2 and read verses 10 to 16, and you will see it was necessary for God himself, Jesus Christ, to identify in humanity, fully in our humanity and our fatigue, fully in our humanity, and to be without sin so that he could be our champion, he could be our victor, he could be our savior, and defeat the enemy who is the devil, to defeat death 
We had to have a Savior that was fully human, the genealogy matters, and fully God, that this offspring of barren Sarah would be carried through in humanity up to Joseph, and the son of David would be the son of God that comes from Mary's womb. And it's through Jesus Christ, the real hero of the story, the real champion of every person who puts their faith in him, that God himself can become the justifier of all who trust him so that we can have a right relationship with him and he himself will be justified. Trusting Jesus as the center of the story will help us discern how we can grow and live more in God's glory. A couple of quick push-ins before we move to the second point. The first is this, the generational blessings that are celebrated in scripture through the list of names are an opportunity we have in this congregation. Our congregation has old people in it. Our congregation has young people in it. Our congregation has seasoned people in it. Our congregation has unseasoned people in it. The biblical community is intended to be intergenerational so that the the rising generation can learn about how God has worked in the past so that the older generation can celebrate and shape how God will work going forward in the future. It's important that you are intentional about reaching up so that you can have seasoned people shape you. And if you're old in here, it's important that you're reaching down so that you can be strength and shape to people uh, who are coming up the next generation. We have that opportunity. It's a beautiful blessing for our congregation. But the second thing I want to push in on is, is the real personal blessing that, that God offers us when we have faith in Christ. You have the opportunity to really find security in God's sovereignty, to truly find a peace that surpasses all understanding, knowing that he's God and you're not. Secondly, you have the opportunity to trust God's word, to believe God's word more than you do the burdens of your life, the brokenness of this world to really sink your faith deep into God and his revelation and his promises. And that's found ultimately through total trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This takes us to the second point, that God is sovereign. He is sovereign over barrenness in our lives, and he's sovereign over the blessing of the world. Now, I, wanna, I really want to challenge you to examine your heart, Okay. If you don't look to God for everything, if you don't trust God to give you the blessing that your heart hungers for, that in your barren places, in your brokenness, if you don't trust God, you will be a thief. You will take from other people's joy. You will take from other places in the world, and you will look horizontally for what only the Lord can give you. There's a spiritual battle in our world, and just as Jesus came life, came to give life and life abundantly, so too there is an enemy that wants to steal, steal joy from you, steal life, to disorder God's good design so that you believe the lie that if you look horizontally, you can have what you hope for and what your heart hungers for. That turns you into a thief. I was reminded by this. A friend of mine shared a story with me. It's unbelievable. Have you ever heard of a woman named Sarah Lynn Hansen? Okay, again, table for one. This is not a good start to the year. She was arrested in November. You know why she was arrested? She was a wedding crasher. 
Now, you might think, that doesn't seem like something to arrest somebody for, but stay tuned. Because Sarah Lynn Hansen, she went to weddings uninvited for more than six years. And while other people were celebrating and other people were having joy, you know what Sarah Lynn Hansen did? Over six different states, or three different states in six different years, she would take what valuables people left on the table. She would rummage through people's purses and pocketbooks. She would take jewelry, credit cards, cash, and she had racked up tens and tens of thousands of dollars until she was finally arrested in November. You see, what happens when we look horizontally for what only God can give us is that we steal and we rob. You say, Mitchell, I think you're being a little dramatic. Well, let me, let me ask you this. Let me ask you to look at your heart. What, what happens in your heart when, when someone gets something nicer than you that you want? Or what happens when someone gets recognized and you feel like you should have gotten the recognition? Or someone's more celebrated than you are? Or more fruitful in their friendships? More fruitful in their work? More fruitful in their finances? Be honest. Think about how you compete in here with other people. Think about how you actually desire other people to stumble so that somehow you can be validated and maybe even elevated, just like Sarah Lynn Henson. You see, when we don't trust God and his promises, our hearts, the hunger, we're going to look for it horizontally. And this is not to condemn, but it's to invite. Invite you from your barren places, from your heartache, from your deepest longings and hopes to look to the Lord alone because he's sovereign over your barrenness and he's sovereign over the blessing. The first description, look what it says. Sarai is described as barren, sterile, Lifeless, or if you're a Cohen Brother fan and you like the movie Raising Arizona, a rocky place where the seed could find no purchase. <laughs> Contrast that description of Sarai, barren, lifeless, sterile, with the, the, the veritable rabbit's den that is the list of the, the genealogy. There are kids spitting out kids everywhere. And God is intending to highlight the fact that even in the barren places, let me rephrase that. God is highlighting that especially in your barren places, he wants to work bountiful blessing and make something beautiful. He does it all the way through Genesis. It's not just Sarai who marries the old dude Abraham, who's described as good as dead. They have a kid. His name's Isaac. Isaac lulls in fuv. He falls in love with a woman named Rebecca. Rebecca is described as barren, and God opens her womb. They have two kids, Jacob and Esau. Jacob is the one through whom the promise of God's covenant goes through. They have lots of kids, right? And Jacob uh, marries two women, again, unadvisable, unadvisable. But the second one that he marries, Rachel, is described as barren. The emphasis physically is so that God can show that he literally brings something from nothing. He literally makes desert areas blossom. He literally 
uses places where you are desperately discouraged to show the light and the life of his faithfulness. So metaphorically, God wants all of us to learn from his wondrous work in the wombs of women, not just in Genesis, even Hannah in the Old Testament or Elizabeth in the New Testament or the Virgin Mary, who was impossible for her. He wants us to believe that those areas of barrenness in our heart can be well watered by the living water, Jesus Christ, that your soul can be satisfied by the bread of life, who is Jesus Christ, that the dark places can be illuminated by the light of the world, who is Jesus Christ, that your lonely places can be satisfied by the one who was love made flesh, who is Jesus Christ. He alone is what your hearts hunger for. And the first word, barren, is totally overwhelmed with God having the last word, blessing. And it's significant that barrenness is the backdrop for blessing because it maximizes and fertilizes the fruitfulness of God's glory. Now next week, uh, we are going to study more of Genesis 12, 1 to 3. If you're working on memorizing scripture this year, I'd encourage you to meditate on that passage. Those three verses, learn them, memorize them. We're going to study them more next week. This week, I want you to see the promise that's made to Abraham with a wife who's barren when he says, I will bless you and your family, your offspring. And the blessings will be so great, he says in verse 3, that you will be a blessing to all the families of the earth. Can you imagine the place of your barrenness, the place of your brokenness to be so overflowing with God's blessing that you're not only celebrating getting out of debt, but you have the opportunity to give and support and to serve others, that is what the gospel offers in Jesus Christ for all who believe. This word blessing, it takes us back to the garden. The first people who were blessed, the first time the word's mentioned is Genesis 1, 28. Adam and Eve created in God's image. It says, and he blessed them. And what did he say after that? Go, be fruitful and multiply. That blessing that God gives in the garden to his people is intrinsically tied to multiplication. Second time the word blessing is used is chapter two, verse three. And when does he do it? He, on the seventh day, when he commands his people to rest, it says he blessed the seventh day. How many of us reject the blessing of the seventh day because we refuse to rest in God's sovereignty? We refuse to really believe that that God's in control of everything. I got to keep working. We refuse to believe that God's really involved in every detail. So I got to keep going. I got to be busy because actually that's a virtue in our culture, right? Not biblically. The invitation is to rest in God's sovereignty. And the blessing that Abram got and that Sarah got was the same. You will be fruitful and you will multiply even against the impossible And you can rest in God's sovereignty knowing it will happen. Now, the the point is not be like Abram and be like Sarai, because we're going to study their story and you're going to see that that they struggle to believe. They identify with us, living by what we see, living by what we feel. And Sarah would compromise and she talks Abraham into sleeping with the servant girl, Hagar. And she laughs at God's promise. She laughs that God could even do this. And then, and then Abram is super complacent in his spiritual leadership. And he just surrenders to the invitation because it's hard to live by faith. It's easy to live by sight. 
But friends, there's no condemnation in Christ. I need you to hear this. God does not crush Abram and Sarah to start over, even in their complacency and even in their compromise. He uses it as a place to show his covenant faithfulness because God keeps his promise and it's never dependent upon the faithfulness of his people, especially not you or me. God will keep his promises. We do not need to steal. We don't need to compete. We don't need to take shortcuts. We can wait. We can trust. And we can embrace his means of grace. Jesus Christ will redeem all that he allows. Jesus Christ will turn the areas of your brokenness, of your barrenness, into a place where the fruitfulness of his promises blossom. And you say, Mitchell, can't you just put a bow around this thing so we can get to the table? I'm there. But I want you to see this first because this is, this is so powerful. And it's an example of how the specificity of God's promises are for you to feast on. Look at this verse. When, God, when, the, when the word of God talks about Jesus coming back, the king returning, when he talks about what the world will look like in the new heavens and the new earth, this is the language. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and the blossom like crocus. You know what a crocus flower is? And they call it the resurrection flower because it's the first flower in the Middle East that comes up after wintertime. And when it blossoms, everybody knows winter's over. And when Christ comes back, when the king returns, everyone will know winter's over. This is a promise. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with uh, joy and singing the glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. Listen to this, church. They shall see the glory of the Lord and the majesty of our God. Where do you see it? In the places that were barren, in the places that were dry, in the places that were the wilderness. And you, like Sarah, like Abraham, like me, have an opportunity to stop and to believe and to trust vertically rather than try to steal horizontally. That's the invitation. That's why we come to this table. The table where we wait. We wait on the Lord come again. But we do so in celebration and even participation in this sacrament. We hope. We hope. Like a real hope. Knowing, being sure that God will redeem everything he allows. Because we know that Jesus Christ entered into something more than barrenness for you. He entered into burial. He died so that you can live. He was rejected so that you could be accepted. He experienced the curse so you can experience the blessing. That's why we come to this table. This is not a table of First Presbyterian Church. This is the table of the Lord Jesus. And he invites everybody who's hungry to come feast on him. Everybody who is living in barrenness to experience the bounty of his blessing and the finished work of Jesus. And so come and feast, knowing that, that you can be sure. Jesus is locally present at the right hand of the Father. After resurrection, he ascended into heaven, but he sent his spirit and he's spiritually present in this meal and he invites you to feast. In your faithful, faithlessness, feast on his faithfulness. In your sense of insecurity, feast on his security. In your poverty, feast on the richness of his loving kindness. And I'm gonna pray for us, but before I do, I wanna give you some new instructions. 
We're going to do this a little bit different today, okay? It's a lot the same. So all our traditionalists, what, things are changing in 2024? No, let's calm down. You're still going to come forward. You're still going to follow the usher's directions. But when you get up here, we're going to ask you to rip. Instead of take a little piece, if you're gluten-free, we still have those little tiny, very microscopic wafers for you. But if you're not gluten-free, you can rip a piece of bread off. You can go ahead and eat it, and then you can sip. Rip and sip. Chew, chase, okay? Yeah, that was a joke. That was a joke. I can't tell you who originally said it, all right? I'm just trying to make a point. You got it? And then we have little receptacles. If you're coming around this way, I have some grandmothers looking at me like, I can't believe he's doing this. So, okay. I'm sorry, but not really. There's a receptacle there. There's a trash can there. I'm going to pray, and I'm going to ask you, friends, don't forfeit this opportunity. We're not doing this because we need to put a cap on the service. We're doing this because the living God wants to meet you, and he wants you to feast upon these truths, knowing he has been faithful, and he will be faithful. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we thank you that you are a God that keeps your promises. Lord, in a world of brokenness, we thank you that you give wholeness. In a world of disorder and darkness, you, you give light and order through the cross of Christ. We thank you, Lord, that in our death we can come and feast on your life. We thank you for the power of your spirit. We ask, Lord, that you'd set this table, this bread, and this cup apart from its common and ordinary purposes. And, and by your spirit, we pray that you would use it to nourish our souls and our spirits the feast on your grace. Lord, our hearts are so heavy. We're heavy with personal brokenness. Our hearts are heavy. We're heavy with global brokenness. The war, the disparity, the death. Oh, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would make things right, that you'd bring peace and protect the vulnerable. And Lord, we pray that in this moment of worship that you would fuel our hearts, that we would really believe that you will do that. We know because you entered death and you suffered that death and suffering are not the end of the story. And as your secure children, we pray together the way you taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. <laughs>